This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this Rand briefing on self driving vehicles, great benefits, but barriers to widespread adoption. So driverless cars, as we all know, are in the news quite a lot these days, and it makes it seem like just around the corner we'll all be uh, saying, look, ma, no hands, cars driving themselves around. Um, It seems inevitable, at least it seemed inevitable to me, but as you'll hear today, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, So why? And James will give you a little sense of why. Um, uh, As he told me, there are advantages and disadvantages, um, and, but there's a little bit of a mismatch between who gets the benefits and who has to pay for the technology. So he'll talk to you a little bit about uh, the exact, exact advantages and disadvantages and how policymakers, more importantly, um, might work that out uh, so that we can get the most efficient adoption of the technology to get the most benefit public good. Um, so James will talk a little bit about the current state of the technology, the policy issues raised, regulations and standards that could be affected, um, liability issues that, that could be uh, that might arise, and again, some recommendations for policymakers. Just a moment, I'll tell you about James. Um, James Anderson is a senior behavioral scientist at Rand Corporation and a member of the faculty at the Party Rand Graduate School. He's working right now on projects on the appropriate role for criminal law in regulating business conduct. He's working on improving the use of forensic evidence. Uh, the effect of regulating medical marijuana, and as you'll see today, he's been taking a close look at the policy implications of autonomous vehicle technology. Among other topics uh, in the past, uh, Anderson has published on the effect of zoning on crime, the indeterminacy of the economic analysis of tort law, and a retrospective on no-fault automobile insurance. Before joining Rand, he practiced law for 10 years. He received a JD from Yale Law School and a BA in ethics, politics, and economics from Yale University. And with that, No more ado, let me turn it over to James. Thank you, Wynn. So I'm here to talk about autonomous vehicles, and you might wonder, uh, you know, why are we even talking about autonomous vehicles? Isn't this complete science fiction? Uh, And uh, a few years ago, that was was certainly the case. Uh, But really, the the technological advancements have been uh, quite startling. Uh, Autonomous vehicle technology is developing uh, remarkably quickly. Uh, the Google X test program has, has logged uh, over 500,000 miles of uh, crash-free uh, d- uh, driving. Um, there are some few important unresolved technical issues that I want to uh, briefly discuss now. Uh, one is sort of which set of sensors should be used. Different sensors are, are good at different things, uh, and so the industry hasn't really uh, settled on any consensus on the exact precise combination of sensors that should be used. Uh, another point that it remains uh, uh, still an open question is the exact way of engaging and disengaging the human driver uh, and when the human driver should take over, particularly in the sort of the earlier iterations of the technology when uh, uh, there's certain, certainly going to be conditions in which the uh, machine is not capable of driving. Um, and then how much does the vehicle depend upon external communications? Uh, over time, there's been sort of different camps on this as to the extent to which uh, the, the, the vision relies on cars that communicate with, with other cars uh, in real time or whether the cars are sort of more autonomous and, and truly autonomous and don't depend on any external communications at all. 
Uh, and then finally, how to address the, the cybersecurity issues. Uh, anytime you have a vehicle that talks to other vehicles or that takes in uh, software updates over the air, as, as Tesla cars do now, uh, there, there are issues with uh, the cybersecurity and to prevent cars from being hacked with potentially uh, very worrisome consequences in this context. Um, so despite these uncertainties, every major auto man manufacturer is, uh, is, uh, has some sort of research program in this. Uh, Nissan, uh, whose who's, uh, autonomous vehicle uh, here, uh, has estimated that they'll have some sort of commercial product by as soon as 2020. Um, uh, it's, it's not clear whether that's uh, uh, maybe over-optimistic, but at the very least, um, nearly every manufacturer estimates that somewhere between 5 and 20 years, uh, they'll have a, a commercial product on the road. Um, so what could possibly go wrong? Well, uh, here I want to introduce a, a bit of a note of caution just based on transportation history, uh, and in particular, um, uh, airbags. Uh, so airbags were first patented in 1953, uh, and they were pretty uh, mature as a technology by the, by the early 70s. Uh, and yet they were uh, only introduced in the, in the 1970s, and they weren't actually uh, required until 1999. And even today, if you, if you uh, drive around, it's not that rare to see a car without airbags. Uh, similarly, another example would be um, NHTSA in 1971 developed sort of a road plan for uh, safety in, in automobiles. And this included uh, tire pressure monitoring, uh, a, a cars that talk to one another by radio to avoid crashes, and a radar-controlled automatic braking system. All things that were at least technologically feasible in the early 70s. Uh, and yet, here we are, 2014, 40 years later, and we have what? Uh, tire pressure monitoring on some uh, fraction of the, of the U.S. automotive fleet? Uh, the, the sort of takeaway I want to I uh, get from this particular historical lesson is really that the technology alone is not sufficient. Uh, and developing the technology, you also need sort of the policy environment so that the technology is actually deployed. So what does that bring us to today? Well, so for the rest of the talk, I want to talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages of uh, automated vehicle technology. I want to talk a little bit about the obstacles to realizing the advantages of the technology. Uh, and I want to talk about what policymakers can do about it. So first, kind of an overview of the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, well, first and probably the most dramatic uh, advantage of this technology is, is the ability to save lives. Um, unfortunately, human beings just aren't that great as drivers. Uh, while road crashes have, have declined quite a bit and road fatalities have declined quite a bit over the last 20 years, uh, more than 30,000 people every year in this country still die uh, from automobile crashes. Uh, and of course, if you look at the worldwide figures, the numbers are much higher. Similarly, if you look at the overall cost as a result of uh, automobile crashes, the, the numbers are, are really quite high. Uh, autonomous vehicle technology has the ability to dramatically reduce that. Uh, you can have sort of automatic braking and, and sort of the fundamental idea is that you can reduce human error, uh, which human beings really is sort of the weak point in uh, the automotive system. Uh, you also have the opportunity to massively improve mobility. Uh, currently, there are tens of thousands of Americans who uh, don't have driver's license and can't drive a vehicle for a variety of reasons. Uh, this is actually a still from a video that, that Google put on uh, YouTube of a Google car uh, driving a person to a, uh, I think it was a Taco Bell drive-through, uh, and, uh, and, and showing the example of a blind person actually being uh, transported in a Google car. So this has substantial potential to improve mobility for the many thousands of Americans who, who aren't able to operate a, a motor vehicle. There's also substantial opportunities to reduce traffic congestion and reduce the cost of traffic congestion that, that remain. 
Uh, so because uh, autonomous vehicles are better at driving than humans, you can put more of them together on any given sp space of roadway. So uh, it, you can potentially double or even triple, by some estimates, the given capacity of, of roadways. Uh, and quite apart from that, even what remaining congestion uh, might remain, the, the individual cost to the, to the human drivers goes down. If you're, if you're able to watch a movie, do work, do email, or even potentially sleep uh, at some point, uh, the, the cost of driving and the cost of the congestion declines significantly. You can also reduce fuel consumption and reduce environmental impact. Uh, so one, one issue is energy consumption, and, and there are really sort of three reasons that energy consumption might go down with autonomous vehicles. One is that computers are just better at accelerating more efficiently and braking uh, more efficiently than human beings are. Uh, the second is that if the focus of auto safety becomes more on avoiding crashes altogether and less on trying to make uh, cars survive crashes, then you can make cars much lighter. Uh, and this has a, a potentially virtuous cycle where if cars are much lighter, uh, you can decrease the uh, size of the engine and the weight of the engine uh, and the like. Uh, finally, there's the potential to uh, use alternative uh, fuel economies or fuel technologies. So, for example, uh, one potentially promising uh, fuel technology is a hydrogen fuel cell. Uh, one of the key disadvantages of hydrogen fuel cell technology right now is that we completely lack the infrastructure to uh, have any sort of refueling capacity. Well, if you have a car that can drive itself to, and refuel itself, uh, say at night, suddenly you don't need the density of refueling stations. Uh, that you would uh, need, that you have, and that what one might otherwise need uh, with with gasoline, uh, and so you could massively reduce the number of refueling stations you would otherwise require. Uh, I'm not going to uh, particularly a number of the uh, all the emissions reductions, but they more or less follow the reductions in um, in um, uh, fuel consumption. Uh, the, the, one of the more interesting, actually, aspects and, and sort of non-obvious uh, implications of autonomous vehicle technology is really a change in land use. Uh, so, so something like 30% of the surface area of Los Angeles is devoted to proximate parking. Uh, if you have most commercial establishments or residential establishments, they need some sort of proximate parking so people can park and get out and go to the uh, establishments. If you have cars that can drop people off and then go to either satellite parking or potentially if you move to sort of a shared car ownership model, uh, you no longer need uh, the acres and acres and acres of parking that are in every major uh, metropolitan area today. Uh, so this, of course, would free up the space for development either for commercial or residential uh, or parks. But uh, the same technology uh, also has important disadvantages that I want to talk about. Interestingly, a lot of the disadvantages are rooted, actually, in the advantage that we, that we just talked about. So one is that congestion could actually increase uh, if drivers drive more. So here's a little uh, image of, a, uh, of a, a car that includes a little sleeping area. So you could imagine if, if in fact, you, the car can truly drive itself, you could have these sort of super, super, super commutes if somebody uh, lived six to eight hours away from their workplace or something. Uh, and so if, if the, since the decline of the cost of congestion goes down, you could actually end up with more actual congestion. Uh, you could also have a decline in, in public transit ridership. Uh, one of the sort of key advantages of uh, public transit today is that you can do other things uh, while you're riding on the train or the bus or what, what have you. Uh, if, if that advantage is now available in every private ownership, uh, every private vehicle, uh, you might see a decline in, in ridership. Uh, you could have a, a vicious cycle of, of declining ridership, increased costs, uh, declining uh, uh, service routes, uh, and profoundly change public transit for the, for the worse. 
Um, and, and finally, there's a, there's a host of people who would uh, likely suffer various kinds of economic disruption. Um, there's, right now, there's an entire existing crash economy that depends, uh, for better or for worse, on the, ex on the regular occurrence of automobile crashes. Uh, this includes not only automobile insurers, uh, but also body shops, uh, even, even some hospital trauma centers uh, uh, rely for their livelihood on uh, the regular occurrence of automobile crashes. If crashes become much, much rarer, uh, there'll be a substantial disruption in that portion of the U.S. economy. Uh, professional drivers uh, obviously will have to uh, find uh, other kind of employment. Um, and then finally, uh, again, a sort of a somewhat non-obvious point is that uh, often uh, city uh, parking revenue makes up a substantial portion, a very reliable portion, uh, of many city finances. Uh, if uh, suddenly uh, we move to a sort of a shared uh, car ownership vehicle, uh, that, that cities will not be able to depend on, on uh, that source of revenue. So all that said, the overall societal benefits uh, of autonomous vehicle technology almost surely exceed the costs on, on almost every uh, reasonable estimate. Um, and this is in part because of the magnitude of some of the categories of cost reduction. Uh, so the reduction in crashes alone could save billions of dollars and, and thousands of lives. Uh, the, the existing costs of congestion and traffic costs are, are also quite significant on, on most estimates. Um, and really, there's sort of no category of, of plausible disadvantages that we outline that we can think of uh, that comes anywhere close to, to those advantages. So, so where, is, where does that leave us? What obstacles prevent us from realizing those benefits? Well, I want to talk about a, a couple important ones, and, and they really come from this sort of this disconnect between who gets the benefits and who might bear the, the costs of, of this technology. Uh, and, and one of the sort of key ideas is, is that a lot of the benefits of the technology won't go to the purchaser. Uh, so here we go through the, the uh, list of the benefits that, that we just talked about. And, um, and, and so the mobility benefits, most of those, in fact, will go to the, to the buyer. If, if I can't otherwise drive and suddenly uh, I'm able to use an autonomous vehicle to get along, most of those benefits will accrue to me. Uh, certainly the cost of congestion. If I can do something else while I'm uh, driving, most of those benefits will go, go to me. Safety, however, I'll get some of the benefits. So suppose my car crashes much less often, but so will every car around me. Uh, so it doesn't just go to me, but it also goes to, to everyone else. Similarly, the, the congestion reduction benefits, uh, the energy consumption benefits, and the land use benefits all go uh, to lots of people. And the, and the buyer only gets uh, some of those benefits. And this is a, a classic instance of what economists call a, a positive externality, where uh, the individual purchaser of the vehicle doesn't get all the benefits of it. Uh, and the, the other sort of important uh, uh, effect, potentially, of this technology, and, and the, one of the reasons that, that we have some concerns that uh, the adoption may be unduly slow and inefficiently slow, uh, is this effect, is that automaker liability is likely to increase. Uh, currently, right now, the sort of the, the mindset of everyone is when there is an automobile crash, uh, people in, in immediately sort of blame one driver or the other. Uh, it's, it's the relatively rare case uh, in which an automaker is in, involved in uh, litigation after an uh, automobile crash. Uh, as this changes, crashes are much more likely to be viewed as the fault of the car and the manufacturer rather than individual driver. Uh, and that's likely to increase uh, automaker uh, liability costs, and potentially the automakers may wish to, to pass that on to the buyers of this technology. Uh, similarly, the existing products liability law doesn't do a great job of, of taking into account the long-term benefits of a particular technology. So uh, imagine a technology, for example, that works and potentially saves many, many lives, but it only works, say, 98% of the time. 
Well, from a societal perspective, we may want that technology to be introduced because it has the potential to save many, many, many lives. Uh, however, if you're an automaker and you know you're going to be sued one out of every 50 times, uh, you, you might have some very serious reservations about uh, introducing that technology, particularly if you know that the, the kind of legal test, the liability test used in the product's liability test, doesn't do a very good job of taking into account the long-run costs and benefits uh, of a particular technology. Uh, and then there are a few other additional factors that may slow adoption inefficiently. Uh, one is the sort of the classic driver overconfidence and undervaluing of safety. Uh, in this country, uh, every uh, driver believes that he or she is above average. Uh, of course, a, a statistical impossibility. Um, and then uh, there's a historic automaker perception that safety really doesn't sell. Uh, and then finally, the early stages of this technology on most predictions is going to require uh, a trained alert driver. Um, uh, who's potentially ready to take over at, at a moment's notice. Uh, in fact, some uh, automakers are investigating various sort of driver monitoring systems to make sure that drivers are paying attention. Uh, now, this potentially can reduce the attractiveness of uh, technology uh, to, the, to the consumer. Uh, so the, the sort of the takeaway of all these factors, the, 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 the fact that a lot of the benefits go to, to other people, uh, the uh, liability issues and the shift of the expected shift of liability away from the individual drivers to the automakers uh, could all lead to a situation where there's either, uh, in the worst case, uh, no purchase of this technology, where the, the technology is, is never sold, uh, or I think much more likely that the technology is adopted, but much more slowly than optimally. Uh, and the, the, so you might say, well, you know, what does it really matter, right? So suppose this, this takes 20, 25 years, uh, or 50 years, let's, let's take the airbag example, uh, instead of 10 years. Uh, well, the, the real cost is in, in human lives and billions of dollars. Uh, and, uh, and so that uh, the adoption may be uh, unnecessarily and inefficiently slow uh, at a cost of, uh, of many, many lives. Um, so what can policymakers do about it? Well, here the story gets a little bit more complicated. Uh, so ideally you want individual consumer benefits and costs to equal societal benefits, right? So you want the incentives that the individual consumer to have to more or less match the incentives that will uh, create a, sort of an optimal uh, solution from a social welfare perspective. Uh, so this is sort of a classic problem in economics, and the sort of the classic solution is a sort of a system of subsidies uh, and user fees to try to equalize uh, the, the individual incentives and the societal benefits. Uh, the problem right now is that we don't have uh, the sort of detailed kinds of cost-benefit analysis that you'd want to really try to craft uh, the, a system of subsidies and really try to identify the magnitudes and the kinds of subsidies and user fees you'd be, you'd be talking about. Uh, but that's, a, that's an, an answerable research question uh, and it's something that, uh, that we hope to have a chance to work on in the near future. Um, there are also the possibility of liability law changes. Uh, and there are, there are some potential possibilities that at least deserve further analysis. Um, one is to sort of clarify standards for these, these imperfect technologies. To go back to the instance where you have a technology that works 98% of the time. Um, uh, you know, maybe you want to allow the, 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 the product manufacturer to introduce some of the long-term benefits into the calculus uh, in determining whether or not there's a design defect or the like. Uh, the problem is that that's quite complicated, and you, and you, it, it, you want to be able to, to allow that, but you also don't want to unduly uh, reduce the incentives for the manufacturer to increase, say, the reliability to 99% or 100%. Um, and, and, and sort of uh, adjusting the, the liability standard in an efficient way is, is, is a tricky, uh, even from a perspective of uh, theory. 
there's also the possibility of just a straightforward federal preemption of, of tort remedies. Uh, this, this has a, a, a few different uh, precedents. Uh, in the 50s, uh, the nuclear industry, uh, the, the Price-Anderson uh, Act uh, provided some liability protections to the, to the nascent nuclear industry. And, and, to the, and today, uh, uh, vaccines have, have done the same thing. Uh, the, the model here would be their uh, sort of explicit statute uh, uh, or um, uh, you could have a NHTSA uh, enact certain regulations. Uh, the downside here is you have to be really certain uh, that you get it right, uh, because and it's a, a potentially taking away the the, uh, the rights to sue in, in, in the common law courts of, of 50 states. So uh, it's not something to be taken under, undertaken lightly. Um, and then finally, another sort of interesting potential uh, model would be an irrebuttable presumption of driver responsibility. Uh, and so the idea here is that rather than, um, it's sort of like a, a captain on a ship, uh, you know, whether or not the captain is actually at the helm, the captain still retains uh, responsibility for the ship. And sort of the same model might be applied uh, for autonomous vehicles and, and drivers. So whether or not the driver actually has his or hands on the wheel, they might still be uh, responsible. Um, uh, this, of course, uh, also has its own disadvantages, uh, but it's a sort of an interesting model and, a, and maybe useful as a way of, of sort of transitioning away from a, a very driver-centric model of uh, responsibility for crashes to, um, uh, to the future. So to kind of sum up, uh, the, the benefits of this technology uh, uh, from a societal perspective almost surely outweigh the disadvantages. Um, However, there's a problem because the purchaser doesn't get all of those uh, advantages. Uh, and so as a result, uh, adoption may be uh, inefficiently slow, uh, potentially at a cost of, of many lives. Um, and then finally, uh, some kinds of subsidies uh, or user fees um, to reduce um, excessive road use or the like. Um, there's been some talk of moving to a, a vehicle mile-based uh, um, system of taxes. Uh, user fees may, you, one could imagine enacting a regime that, um, uh, that it involves that as well, uh, but some sort of uh, regime that involves subsidies and, and user fees uh, might be the way to go to solve this sort of, uh, this problem, the, uh, the fact that the, the per potential purchasers of the technology uh, don't get all the benefits of it. Uh, so th this is uh, sort of a, a more or less a, a brief excerpt uh, from a longer, longer, uh, a longer report that we issued in early January. Uh, this was funded by RAND, um, uh, and uh, I think there are copies right outside of uh, the doorway. And so I'd be happy to take uh, any questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.